Hello, everyone. You're listening to Knight's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, not just to the new year of Knight's History Cast, as this is the first episode of 2024 for the podcast, but also welcome back to the kind of this regular style interview question and answer format. Of course, as some of you may know, Knight's History Cast kind of took a little detour in the feed for the 2023 UCF VLP Veterans Legacy Program Institute podcast series, which was an amazing podcast series in terms of pre-production, production, production, post-production. A huge shout out to Dr. Amelia Lyons for giving me the green light essentially to even pursue this idea of making a podcast series for the Institute. Shout out to all the UCF VLP team members that have been so kind to me and have really uh, facilitated the idea from conception to execution. Um, it was a fantastic, fantastic uh, opportunity, and I'm glad we were all able to seize it. Um, and also shout out to all the teachers that were a part of the the VOP Institute podcast series. They were the guests, and they honestly, you know, they, they brought a certain enthusiasm once the conversations were going, and it was great. And more importantly, I hope the podcast series illuminates and, and brings to the forefront the questions that the Institute was trying to answer as to why it's important to teach veterans history um, in the K-12 classroom. So I think the Institute and its subsequent podcast series were successful. But Night History Cast finally returns to its uh, traditional podcast style. Um, And in this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Julian Chambliss, who, if you have been a consistent listener of Night History Cast, that name sounds familiar because I did have a podcast conversation with him last year regarding the 2023 Zora Festival uh, Afrofuturism Academic Conference. And this year is the space, which my goodness, and we get to this in the conversation. What a timely thematic uh, approach uh, with the Hungerford School property in Edenville, Florida, and the current debates and controversy surrounding that development. And we discussed about that very thoroughly in this podcast. Also featured in this podcast is Dr. Scott French, who is a professor of history here at the University of Central Florida, another mentor of mine who has really supported me in this entire endeavor for Knight's History Cast. So I was finally, I mean, he was part of the, I did interview him in one of the first episodes I did uh, in the symposium of 2022, but this is the first time he's featured in a full-length podcast. And I was finally glad I was able to bring him on with his close colleague, uh, Dr. Julian Chambliss. They're both curators of the Zora Festival um, Afrofuturism Academic Conference cycle, so the the five-year cycle. And because this was the last year of the cycle, we also were able to reflect more broadly about their experiences, in what ways the the conference was incredibly successful, and in what ways would they have uh, approached things differently, you know, looking back. So those are kind of the broad narrative strokes that we hit in this conversation. So enough of me talking. I hope you enjoy the podcast and cue that music. Hello, everyone. This is Sebastian Garcia from Night's History Cast. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Julian Chambliss and Dr. Scott French, both of whom are involved in curating the 2024 Zora Festival Afrofuturism Academic Conference, and of course, that's what we'll be talking about today. But 
what makes this um, episode also a little bit special is that this year marks the final year of the 2020 to 2024 Zora Festival Afrofuturism conference cycle, and we'll be broadly reflecting on those experiences also in this episode. A quick bio of these two gentlemen. Dr. Julian Chambliss is a professor of English with an appointment in history and the Val Berryman Curator of History at the MSU Museum at Michigan State University. In addition, he is a core participant in the MSU College of Arts and Letters Consortium for Critical Diversity in a Digital Age Research, CDAR. His research interests focus on race, culture, and power in real and imagined urban spaces. His recent writing has appeared in the American Historical Review, Phylon, Freeze Magazine, Rhetoric Review, and Boston Review. An interdisciplinary scholar, he has designed museum exhibitions, curated art shows, and created public history projects that trace community, ideology, and power in the United States. Dr. Scott French is an associate professor of history, director of public history, and associate director of the Center for Humanities and Digital Research at the University of Central Florida. He is the author of The Rebellious Slave, Nat Turner in American Memory, and has published extensively on African-American history, cultural landscapes, and sites of memory. His research on Edenville and its Hungerford School has been featured in the Zora Neale Hurston National Museum of Fine Arts, as well as Winter Park Magazine, WCF Central Florida Road Trip, and CBS Sunday Morning. His peer-reviewed essay, Social Preservation and Moral Capitalism in the Historic Black Township of Edenville, Florida, A Case Study in Reverse Gentrification, appears in Change Over Time, a journal of conservation and the built environment. Dr. French chairs the Zora Festival Academics Committee and serves as UCF's lead organizer for the conference in collaboration with Afrofuturism Cycle curator Dr. Julian Chambliss, which is why we're having this episode. That was a mouthful. So how are you both doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, we're doing good. We just uh, finished up the weekend, so uh, we're excited to, to talk about it, I think. Yeah, for sure. So the 2024 Zora Festival Afrofuturism Conference to give context to the listener, it was a four-day event from January 24th to 27th, 2024. As Dr. Scott French just mentioned, it just finished this today. It was held at the historic Edenville, Florida. The theme was space, and each day of the conference focused on a particular dimension of space. So the first day was preservation space. The second day was real space with the Hungerford School. The third day was imagined and virtual space. And then this final day was, of course, interacting with the physical space through a walking tour of Edenville. And of course, uh, like I just mentioned, it's the final year of the the cycle. So to start our conversation, I'm actually going to play back a brief recording from our conversation last year, uh, Dr. Chambliss, because for those of you that listen to this podcast frequently, I did speak with Dr. Chambliss about a year ago about the 2023 Festival Afrofuturism Conference and really listen back to that episode to know more about Afrofuturism, the definitions, its origins in, in academia and in the public, because we're not going to be touching those aspects here because that'll be pretty repetitive. So go listen back to that episode. It was very useful for me to refresh my memory for this episode. So I will play the clip now. Give us a brief preview of what to expect for next year's Zora Festival, um, where the theme is space. Yeah, you know, this is the last year. And obviously, space is a really complicated context in light of Eatonville's sort of like current debates about development right. and identification. Mm -hmm. So, space is both uh, in Afrofuturism a place that is real place, like outer space, and there's a lot of space symbolism. But it's also an internal place. And so, one of the things that I, I'm pretty positive we're going to do is we're going to engage with kind of future studies practice and really think about how people can imagine new spaces 
And that'll be like a huge part of, of what will happen at the festival. And there's different ways to do that. And I know I, I have a couple of things in mind. Um, but I'm also, you know, mindful of the fact that it is actual physical spaces. So what does a 21st century black town look like? Right. Right. Like uh, what is a 21st century Eatonville? Like, you know, what is Eatonville? What's, and, and, and here again, the idea of like, what does it mean to sort of bring the technological transformations of now to bear in envisioning an Eatonville of the future, an Eatonville that's projecting itself into the in, into the next 150 years. You know, is that a wired Eatonville? Is that an Eatonville that is 100% sustainable? And so those are the kinds of things where I'm like, yeah, is there a way for us to bring those ideas into into conversation with um, these sort of like historic black spaces. I think that's an important sort of way to end it. So how do these ideas and expectations get realized or changed uh, now that the 2024 uh, Zora Festival Afrofuturism Conference has concluded? Um, We did do two things that I mentioned there. We talked about the real space uh, very deliberately, the history of the space how that space was developed over time and what are some of the issues that got you to the contemporary moment. And we also talk very deliberately about envisioning space uh, through technological means. Lonnie Brooks, who's a future studies person, uh, really, you know, talked a lot about the idea of virtual spaces and sort of cultural cultural transformations that can come from engagement of personal spaces, but those virtual spaces, but also thinking very deliberately about what it's connected to real space. Um, we didn't do as much around sort of demoing and projecting what those possible spaces would look like, right? Like imagining the creation of digital virtual Eatonvilles that like, hey, it could look like this or it could look like that. Uh, that was an idea that I had, and I did look into it, but it would involve, at the time, the idea was um, some design sprints that would have had to been very complicated. But I think, you know, in terms of that relationship between a past set of questions related to space and a future set of questions related to space, that, that played itself out pretty well. And important sort of like interventions in terms of like real space and like what 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 do you do to protect heritage spaces and what does it mean to sort of like think through that from a policy or a community standpoint and what is the role of institutions in that those things all all got spoken about right and as as i said there yeah that's really important given where the town of eatonville is and the big debates that, you know, only have grown more complex and more more national and international in their context. I mean, I think more people know about the fate or concern about the fate of Eatonville uh, because of the debates around the Hungerford, Robert Hungerford School property than than knew last year, for sure, when, when we talked. Yeah, for sure. Right. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, I always knew it was going to end up in space, and I and I always thought that was important, but I could have never predicted how some of the crisis or crises related to space would be so front of people's minds, right? Uh, when we got here, right? 
Yeah, and that leads to my my next question. That and I would like so for context, right? Because as you mentioned, the development with Hungerford School property has only grown more complex since last year. But I would like for either of you to explain the current debate, struggle, developments surrounding the Robert Hungerford School property in Evenville since last year's conference. Then the second person can explain how those developments surrounding Hungerford affected the approach and ultimately the execution of this year's conference? It, it is a kind of complex legal question, but I think it really starts with a, the community coming into awareness of a threat. I, and it was at first a sort of uh, conversation that was happening individually among people. And then when the school buildings were demolished, the historic Hungerford school buildings were demolished, I think people said, oh, this is getting real. And there were a number of community conversations around that um, where people talked about the experience of watching sort of the bulldozers come in and the, the dumpsters being filled with materials from the school and people holding up their cell phones and, and sort of witnessing this. And I think that's when it became real. I think there had been, for years, there had been discussion of developing this property. And so sometimes it's like, well, why did it suddenly become a crisis? It began to take form. There were actual developers with plans on the table, and the, the plans were being brought to the city. The story wasn't really being treated as a, a, a crisis. It was a business story. In fact, we had a reporter from the Orlando Sentinel, Desiree Stennett, on our panel at the conference describing that. She said, I just thought it, at the time it felt like a normal development story. It could be happening in any community. But the story sort of became more and more tied to certain decisions that would have to be made by the city of Eatonville. The city controlled a certain piece of this. The piece they had was the developers wanted a change to the comprehensive plan of the city. There have to be two hearings when there's a proposal to change the comprehensive plan. And there was a hearing at which the town council voted four to one in favor of making those changes that the developer wanted. It was between that vote and the next vote that all of the grassroots organizing took place. And what we witnessed, and we witnessed this, by the way, in my class. My class was following this, and, and we saw in real time uh, my digital history class. Uh, we watched the grassroots mobilization of opposition and the use of social media and you know, hashtag activism, we saw the city council's vote flipped right. from four to one in favor of the changes to three to two against. And it was a, an amazing moment in democracy, right? This is a, Eatonville itself is a model of self-governance. It was built as an independent black township in which self-governance was at the core, right? We will determine our own fate. It doesn't mean we will always agree, but we will decide the fate and future of this place. And so that sets up a clash now with the Orange County School Board. Uh, the developers, after that vote, they decided to drop their plans. And there was a push, some pressure on the school board. Okay, now, you, this is your chance now. You can, you can stop trying to sell this land. Give it back to Eatonville. That was the land back claim. Give it back. Right. They refused to take that position. They left open. The, they said, we're going to pause and we're going to leave open the future of this land. So this is about futurism. Everything is about what's going to happen here. So I'm going to turn this over to Julian now. 
talk about the how we use the conference in some way to engage with that question that is very real right. in a policy sense and in a legal sense, but we, we were grappling with it as a, a set of programs in which we could engage with the public around right. these issues. Yeah, the, the problem of the property really has loomed over the cycle because even when we started there was always like a question about what's going to happen with with that property and to scott's point like it really accelerated with the destruction of the historic school site right like when the building went away and they were prepping for um you know they had the rfp out the the call for proposals from the city and all those things but even before that i think when I was thinking about the cycle, part of the reason this space was going to end the cycle, because, you know, there's an argument to be made that could have started with that, because that would be the thing that most people understood. Because it's like, oh, black people in space, which I always make fun of and when I teach the class about futurism, just because you see a black person in space doesn't make an Afrofuturist. Right. There has to be like a philosophy right. around liberation and transformation. Blah, blah, blah. But it's really easy for people to understand. But instead, I always had it at the end, in part because I was trying to build towards a kind of ideological understanding around spaces, both this sort of like real thing, but also this sort of uh, ideological landscape. Because in some ways, that returns the idea of Edenville to its core as a, a future project, right? Because right. the town is a future project. Because if you think about Afrofuturism as a, a black practice, you can do it any time. So you have to recognize that when the people who founded Eatonville, Joe Clark and these people, when they're involved in that process, they're really trying to create a space that's going to forecast into the future. Like they're, 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 they're trying to create like a future, a ship that people, black people can get into in the midst of the sort of social, political, economic downturn that we associate with the Nadir. And this is their solution in a in a landscape where actually African-Americans have tried out many possible solutions. And this is part of the thing I talked about in my address, right? When we think about how Black people are facing the end of Reconstruction, you know, the way it's get taught is that like, well, Black people are just like sort of these objects that are acted upon by circumstances. But in reality, they are actors who are making real choices based on how they understand the landscape. And and they have lots of different approaches. Like they're not all, they're not monolithic, right? right. Like some of them, like, let's go back to Africa. Some of them, like, let's go West. Some of them, like, let's stay and really sort of like create kind of institutional bulwarks that are going to allow us to survive. And black towns, especially the historic black towns that even sort of like typifies, really capture a very particular uh, kind of self-help uh, resistance thing. And so in some ways, ending on space is both a historical point that taps into an ideology of Black speculative practice that you don't necessarily always think about, but also speaks to this question of like, yes, we do have these historic Black spaces. How will they proceed into the future? And so when we're talking about this in the context of the program, we had always been sort of trying to make that point clear because the other thing is of course like Scott and I we collaborate and like we write things and 
and we've been writing about like the hunger for school as like an Afrofuturist space and, and, and trying to think through what is what is represented by the, the space of the festival as a kind of cultural vehicle, right? Like a, a vehicle for visioning and, and thinking about black culture and, and things. And so we're we're really sort of sensitive to this in a way that probably other people aren't. Um, you know, sometimes you can be very inside baseball and like we can never explain in totality all the ideas that might be running behind our eyes when we're talking to people like, we're going to do this thing, right? Right. And if we try to explain all the things that this thing represents to you, <laughs> you are not going to be okay. Right. Right. Like your brain's going to break. Scott, it'd be okay. But if I start talking too, it's it, that, no, it yeah. won't, it won't work. <laughs> right. It won't work. I know. I know. I've, I've, we've done it before. I'm like, oh, and then by the time we get to the end, the person is like, I don't know what you said. It sounded good. Right. But I just don't know. I just don't, I just don't know. I'm like, okay. So some of it is like, we're always trying to like translate what is something very complicated into moments of clarity and really, you know, thinking about people who are doing things and are able to explain things in a way. And also trying to contextualize things that people know I was there for. I think I read those, you know, you know, if you think about the public uproar, right? Like, you know, to hear Scott describe it, that's a really important point. But, you know, there's a way that that point is a long history in Edenville that has these historical antecedents that people in Edenville would even, if you asked them or you were to sit down and talk with them, they'd be able to articulate it to you. But I would also argue that a lot of them don't necessarily associate it with what the people are doing right now because it looks different because right. they're using different tools. Like, they don't necessarily understand Dwayne Johnson's hashtag 1887. Like, they don't necessarily understand that as the same thing that would have been very active in the 1950s in the town. But it's a very similar sentiment. Even the land back movement is really interesting because you, you remember that Florida is a place where the interaction between African-Americans and Native Americans was so threatening that Andrew Jackson brought troops in to sort of break it up. So to have an African-American take was essentially a sort of Native American ideology and incorporated into like this sort of resistance narrative for a black town. On one hand, oh, that, you know, that's appropriation. On the other hand, that's a return to a set of cooperative practice born of indigenous people in opposition to uh, settler colonialism. Right. Right. Like these are all very academic things that we can talk about, but can you tell the public that? No. So it's like thinking about it as a curator, I'm like, oh, there are always big ideas here. Like we always describe it, you know, as a public humanities project. But we're also mindful that, hey, you know, the person walking off the street has to understand what they saw. And, you know, that's always that's always the, the sort of balancing act of it. You mentioned your address that you gave in date two. And for our listeners, the address was titled The Hunger for Legacy and the History of Black Futures, which you've been, of course, been elaborating throughout our conversation. But in what other ways does that align with the thematic framework of space for this year's conference? Well, you know, there are a couple of different things that I was trying to, to do. One was to sort of like contextualize the legacy of black spaces in in Florida within a broader historiography of the post-Civil War black experience, which in itself is not that complicated in, in a way we know that story, but it's, it's sort of orienting 
the sense of an ideological pathway being chosen by the people that represent the pathway of Eatonville. Like, like why do you make a black town? That's a different path than, say, going west. Mm-hmm. That's a different path than, say, like, a kind of back black nationalist or returning to Africa or even going north, right? Like, there's there's many different things that black people do. It's even different from leaving the land and, and, and sort of, like, adopting and incorporating yourself into the urban environment, which is another sort of pathway that people take. So the pathway of creating a black town is a particular pathway, but it is ideologically sort of tied to a particular kind of black self-help uplift ideology that's tightly associated with Booker T. Washington. And one of the things that, you know, my reading of the ideology, and I sort of explained this to one of the people that asked me about it, you know, I think when we, we talk about Booker T. Washington and traditional historic, historiographical narrative, he is not a, a favorite figure because his counterpoint is W.B. Du Bois, who's at some of the most famous black intellectual in the 20th century. Right. Much beloved and much admired and who's, who's, who endured and observed and participated in pretty much every major intellectual conversation of the, of the 20th century, right? You know, think about all the things he saw. Right. In contrast, Washington represents a kind of figure who bridges the experience of the 19th century into a kind of ill-defined 20th century for Black people, where, you know, I describe him sometimes as a trickster figure who is employing a language that seems like acquiescence to segregation in order to secure funds to support the development of self-help networks that allow for Black people to build the capacity to, in the future, press for the best possible outcome that they can achieve, right? And so that that's a really, in some ways, I think people would argue, a very kind way to describe Booker T. Washington. But if you were describing Booker T. Washington in the context of sort of looking through the lens of what people on the ground in a place like Eatonville are saying, who think of themselves as adherents to that philosophy, who think about themselves as well building something or constructing something that will allow for themselves to be sustained and for future generations to be sustained. It actually makes a lot of sense. Like they, they see themselves as part of a system. They see themselves as involved in a series of projects that are scattered across the South that are transformative and uh, engaging. And so I really wanted to sort of talk about that. And then finally talk about how, because the hunger for school is founded by, a graduate of Tuskegee, how much the sort of philosophy of the Tuskegee institution is manifest in the operation and positioning of the school. Like it becomes this sort of hub of education, this hub of coordination, this hub of sort of forward-looking, future-oriented activity. And so that's sort of like the goal. And then later on, Scott sort of talked very very deliberately about, you know, that was working, but... (laughs) the argument being made to sell the land in the 50s is really about equalization, right? And about um, segregation as who, you know, thanks to the work he did with his class, we we know the sort of transformation of the, the school board trustees for t- uh, of, of the property and how that transformation really sort of removes many of the people who ideology adhere to the original vision and so then the ultimate decision about transference 
which I talked about, like it wasn't about the money. It was more about equalization. And Scott can tell tell you more about about that. Well, you know, interestingly, and I didn't make this point in my presentation, but the difference between Eatonville as a town and Hungerford as a school is that Eatonville as a town was created with restrictive covenants. The property could only be sold to black people. Black, it was a mm. colored township and it would retain that identity in perpetuity in the vision of the founders. And the idea behind that was not to denigrate or push aside. It was to include, to make sure this, this community would not be broken up by predatory forces or by debt, right? Indebtedness, which is all co also can result from predatory forces, right. from gentrification, right? This is the argument in my ar article is reverse gentrification. When it was founded, when Eatonville was founded already, many wealthy people were coming in here and buying up land to create citrus groves and take advantage of the railroads coming in. And they, would, uh, they were unwilling to sell to black people. So when Joe Clark and the other two visionaries who had an idea of a freedom colony, a race colony, when they were finally able to find white allies who could assist in creating Eatonville, they wanted to ensure that it couldn't be broken up by individual decisions. That it would always, not that all black people would always agree on the future, but that it would be in the hands of black people. Right. The difference with Hungerford, which is the research I shared, and this is really importantly augmented by one of my students, uh, Sarah Boy, who researched the identity of the trustees. What we demonstrated over time was that in the early years, Eatonville had a very strong voice on the trustees. And beyond Eatonville, other African-Americans, representatives of Tuskegee, for example, Tuskegee Institute, were on the board. And there was a rough balance between black and white trustees. And that changes. And it changes largely because of lawsuits in the 1930s and the switch to a court-appointed board. And after the 1930s, this board is all white. There may be some local white people, but they're not from Eatonville and they, and they may be sympathetic to the mission of the school. But when push comes to shove and the county says, they're answering to a chancery court judge. And the, when the county is looking for land to respond to this equalization challenge, they need to build a black public high school. They look, they see Hungerford School, and they also make the case that Hungerford has no future. There's no future because all of the communities that were sending their children to Hungerford were getting black public high schools. They no longer have to send their children to Eatonville to get a decent you know, high school or college prep education. And that was their argument, which, you know, is couched in sort of a, a protective thing. You know, either you change or you die. The forces who disagreed with that were the Hungerford family heirs and Rollins, importantly, Rollins College. Some very important figures, Edwin Grover, the professor of books and Hamilton Holt. Right. And the heirs, they, they created a Friends of Hungerford School to say, no, it can be saved and it has a future. The future is to ally itself with Bethune-Cookman College. And Mary McLeod Bethune came in and made a very, and Julian's talk was great. He had it all laid out. You know, here's how Mary McLeod Bethune pitched the idea of an alliance that Eatonville, that Hungerford would become a prep school for, for Eaton, for Bethune-Cookman, a kind of, I forget the word for this, but it was like, um, a theater. A theater like a school, theater. Yeah. yeah. But they had a future. So these competing pictures. One is you're, and you're hearing it today, Eatonville's dying. You know, they said that Hungerford's dying. And, you know, the people who wanted to save it said, no, it has a future. And ultimately the people with the power was really the white segregationist, white power structure of central Florida said, no, 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 
we listened to your alternative. That's not viable. We're, we're going to make this transfer. And so for a very nominal sum of $16,000, they transfer this property to the county. And you know that's the story I, that we, Julian and I have been exploring together. But that, that was a critical moment. And I guess I'm trying to tie it to that idea of control or community control. Already by then, Eatonville had lost considerable control over that property. Even if a neighbor had legal control, they had a kind of claim to it through the trustees. And after that, it was always protest from the outside. When the county would do something, sell off land without returning the proceeds in, all, in any way, the people of Eatonville would rally or the people who were the Hungerford School PTA would rally and say, no, stop. They would try to change the name. The people of Eatonville and the people of wider you know, Hungerford High School community would say, no, you can't change the name. It's just a pattern that persists. And that's a pattern that persists up into the present, right? That right. The, the county doesn't listen. Even that was a phrase heard also in Eatonville in the 1990s when the county wanted to widen Kennedy Boulevard. It was the origin of the festival, of origin of the preserve the Eatonville community was fighting a county plan to widen the road through Eatonville. Right. You want to, I don't know if you want to tie in with that, but it, it's tied to the festival because the festival grew out of that preservation effort. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. The idea that they wanted to, to widen the street leads to the creation of a coalition. And the argument, of course, is that Edenville is a culturally important place because homes on their Hurston. And to sort of emphasize that point, they started doing the festival right. in the midst of the fight. Uh, and that becomes... The impetus also for them doing a National Historic Register, Register campaign, and they get that. And, and so at some level, yes, it's the sort of county's attempt to widen the road that leads to the creation of the Association of Preserve Eville Community, which leads to the creation of the festival as an annual event to remind people that this is the home of Zona Hurston and, and celebrate it and it will work. And the oldest black and the historic, oldest black historic yeah, municipality right. in the United States, right? Right. Yeah. But here we are, 35 years into the festival, and we're fighting. It's another existential crisis. Right. Right. It's an existential crisis because what happens to that space, because it's so large and the town itself is relatively tiny, mm-hmm. it's impossible to imagine the kind of developments that are sort of suggested there and it not sort of fundamentally erasing the town. And it's important to recognize that I don't think anyone, any bill, would say they don't want any development. Like, that's always this thing where, for various reasons, uh, white people tend to listen to complaints, uh, any sort of charge or resistance to development like this. Like, oh, black people don't want development. No, that's not true. It's not true in Eatonville. It's not true in Hannibal Square, which is another historic community right down the street and has a lot of connections to Eatonville. It's not true in any sort of historic black place. They want development. They simply want development that will enhance the community as opposed to enrich the developer. Right. Right. So there's the difference, right? Like, you know, we want development that would be good for we who live here as opposed to great for you who build it and then sell it to whomever you can because they want to find a place they can live in Central Florida, they'll be close to their job, right? And so there's a way where, like, you know, these are kind of classic questions, but at the same time, there are recurring patterns, mm-hmm. right? Right. Another example of that is Paramore, 
like the the right. of development like they don't want to develop it's the what type of development are we talking about right is the question i'm glad you elaborated more of the historical context dr french surrounding you know the the hungerford school property because despite its national coverage that it's gotten of course it's been in a way simplified but this is a tremendously complex issue and i'm glad you elaborate on it of course you're echoing your panel presentation which also featured notable people like John Beecham, Julian Johnson, the Southern Poverty Law Center, who with you, all of you really have elevated the awareness of the struggle, again, in local, regional, and national media outlets. For our listeners, the session was titled Eatonville's Historic Hungerford School Property and the 21st Century Struggle for Preservation, Economic Revitalization, and Community Control. Besides what you already articulated, what else did you contribute to this panel and what, what did your peers also say about this topic? Well, Dr. Walter Grayson really led it off. We, we felt, again, and I think we were building on what Julian had done in the morning. Very clearly, it was an extension of that introduction. And Walter took it sort of big with uh, placemaking and kind of set the stage for the conversation we wanted to have uh, with the community. I wanted to give a background presentation that explained those key moments in Hungerford's history from its founding through the 1950s and through the era of it being a black public school, which Julian and I were very interested in as well, because that was a time, that's the period, and Julian writes about this, when Hungerford really becomes much more attached. I mean, the people of this area, the black community becomes attached to the school. It's a regional school. I don't know if you want to say anything about that. Uh, right. I mean, I think when people are talking about Hungerford, almost none of them are talking about the boarding school mm-hmm. Hungerford, right? Like the Hungerford model that is most tightly connected to the Booker T. Washington, you know, we're boarding black students from across the state and from you know, They're very much attached to the Hungerford that is controlled by the school board. But in a way, that Hungerford is is a community school that represents a a safe place for and a and a culture because at some level, even though it's controlled by the school board, it is a black school and, and the teachers there are steeped in the ethos of Hungerford. Ethos of Hungerford is that Washingtonian self-help uplift ethos. Mm-hmm. So even though they are, are a black school, you know, part of the thing about equalization is like, well, we solve the problem, the black people go there. Once they're there, we don't care. So the, the education they're getting there is not an education like, woe is me. It's an education that really continues that legacy of the uh, Washingtonian uplift, you know, pride in self, pride in place sort of thing. And so that's that's the... That's the memory that most people have of Hungerford, ironically, right? Like they have that memory and that makes Hungerford's decline or the the erasure of it even more of a regional thing. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it is a town thing, but in some ways it's a, all of the black diaspora in Orange County thing, right? Because so many people are attending the school and so many people are attached to that experience. And so in a way, it almost everyone who's alive, who who it was talking about or or all the sort of artifacts that are associated with or associated with that that period. Mm-hmm. And we can make the argument that that period is a direct inheritor of the legacy of the place, but it is actually technically a part of the Orange County School Board. 
right? And so that that's one of the ways that it's really interesting to think about. But in 1967, so it has a life as a public school from about 1952 to 1967. And then, like many black schools of the desegregation era, it was effectively closed. I mean, it didn't shut down. It became the, the school board transferred it and transformed it into a vocational school. And Frank Oti, who was the uh, historian of Eatonville, but he was the principal of the school during that period. He has a, a book, a history of Eatonville that includes a lengthy section on Hungerford, and he talks about the effect of that transformation. And he says, after that, it used to be that everybody had a connection to Eatonville. Every, every young person who grew up in Eatonville would have had been an alumni of, of Hungerford. And it's after that point that Hungerford ceases to be that central focal point for the community. But I asked John, this is where John Beecham and the community comes in. We did a history harvest mm -hmm. with alumni uh, last fall mm -hmm. with with my uh, another digital history class. And I interviewed, I interviewed John because yes, I know him so well. Mm -hmm. And he, I said, well, after it closed, he said it did change. We started, we could, those of us who wanted to go to college, we had to go to Edgewater or we had to go to other schools. I said, well, so did you still feel connected? He said, well, we, we felt it would always be there. You know, it wasn't that, and we, there were still events there. We'd go see football games there. Right. And so it was still a part of the community and a, they had an attachment to it. It never, they never perceived for many years that it would stop being a school or that it would stop being in some ways um, a cultural property over which they had some control. I mean, no, I don't think that anyone had a particular idea of what that control meant, but they didn't get the impression that someone's going to come in, take it away and redevelop it in some form or fashion that would be unrecognizable to them. And this is, he's speaking from his own personal experience and his own family experience. So the, the idea of the panel was to sort of set up the history and then invite an older resident, and, and John's not that old, but I'm right. old enough to, to remember the transition, but John is a key player in the, the land back movement. And I wanted him to be on the panel and explain what motivated him to step forward because it takes somebody to step forward and he, was the one who took that idea of land back. He heard about it from the mayor of uh, Maitland. His uh, son is, uh, I think, a student at Stanford University. And land back, the land back movement is very strong on the West Coast. That idea, John took that idea and said, that applies to us. This is sacred land. We're going to use that. He created hashtag land back, made yard signs out of his, took his own money. He's a landscaper. He built yard signs. He put them all up around the, the Hungerford property. Suddenly, Wesh to other media outlets are paying attention. They're interviewing him. And he wasn't alone. He's working with Julian. And so part of this discussion also was useful for me was Julian Johnson, another land back activist who also had his own website. Mm -hmm. They were working in tandem. And John was talking about at on our panel, because John and Julian were on there together, they sort of were describing how they saw their their efforts working in tandem. And Julian was important in reminding people that they had power to shape this through the democratic process. And he had a printing company and he would print up like scorecards, who's voting, who voted, oh, which wow. way. And he had the dates, the next meeting is this date. And these were really beautiful flyers, you know, laminated cards. And this is not hashtag. This is, this is just letting people know there's a public meeting coming up and we need you to be there. And which side are you on? And one of the things that both he and John talked about was, and Julian's younger, so it's two generations. I wanted to get that in here too. Right. Both of them are tied to Eatonville, but that this effort 
ultimately it was old fashioned politics. And they talked about the cost of that in terms of relationships and in terms of employment. You know, there was a cost. I wanted people to hear, you know, we talk about kind of in an academic way and we talk, you know, here's a nonprofit or, you know, a PC is a nonprofit. And these are two individuals who have day jobs. They work full time, you right. know, and they are going, they said, this is important enough to me that I'm going to risk losing friends and I'm going to alienate people because I'm too pushy. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm being loud about this. Right. And I wanted that to be part. And I also thought it would be important to have our reporter, Desiree Stennett, who had been covering this, to say, when did this, how did this, how did you view this as a journalist? You know, but she also talked as an individual who had been assigned to a special beat. It was like the race and equity beat. Yeah. The Sentinel, after the George Floyd murder, created, as did many institutions, a kind of special, they, they wanted to make a special, a, pay special attention to issues of race and equity. And her title at the time of doing some of the reporting, she didn't. She did investigative reporting. She didn't just cover the story. She went and did a story on the the judge in the, the 1950s who was a segregationist. And she got pushback. And people pointed to that and said, you know, you're, you're biased. You came in here looking for race. And, you know, you, you're – and she spoke very movingly about that. And I knew – I had met her at a meeting. I gave a public talk and we talked afterward. And I was very moved by her experience. Everybody is experiencing this on a very personal. I think Julian and I experience this on a personal level. So all of us who study it, it's this thing that we, you know, we're interested in intellectually. But there's a there's a personal dimension to this. Anybody who gets truly involved in it um, has a, there's something transformed. You come to understand what's at stake, what is community, and what are the pressures on community and. You know, what does it take? What are the energy level that you have to put in there? And what's it, what are the risks that you take by stepping forward? So that panel, I thought that particular piece of the panel, at some point I just stepped off the panel. <laughs> it just, it opened up and I just stepped, I just backed off and it just became directly, I was asking a Q&A to get it started and then it became an audience. I was listening and learning. Even Desiree Stennett, the reporter, was informing me about things I didn't realize, the, the positions taken by the school board, because she continued to follow it. It's hard for us sometimes as historians to follow the story. You know, I, I don't know if Julian follows it on a micro level, you oh, know. Wow. It, it's a little hard to keep track of it, but if you're, the, if you're a reporter, you're watching and you're looking for every new development. So it was really, journalism has a place to play in this. And I think one of the things that comes up here today too is the decline of local journalism, right? Yeah. You know, the way that journalism is under attack, that these newspapers are being bought out, mm -hmm. um, their stabs are being gutted, you know, who can afford to do investigative journalism? Yeah, I thought all point. of that was at stake here. This story, this was really about storytelling, right? How do you keep, how do you stay informed? How do you inform the public? How does the media, what role does the media play in the informing of the public? So that was a session within it. And then we had the team from Southern Poverty Law Center come in and they told, how did they come to get involved? How does an institution, a nonprofit, you know, that is devoted to issues of equity decide to take on Eatonville? And what we learned was that partly it was the people of Eatonville showing that they wanted to preserve this land. So that vote became very important. It may look like the heroes rode in, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center came in and say, they didn't come in. They did come in, but they came in because they saw that the community needed, wanted this uh, land to be preserved. They saw, I think, a chance to, to really highlight the threat you know, to communities through, and, and particularly around issues of land and land ownership. Right. You know, one of the things they did talk about was the, 
their interactions with um, in wine, the PC, and learning about the challenge and learning about the circumstances and sort of recognizing that there was a legal, a, le- a set of legal questions that you know that they could pursue, you know, as as the, with the PC as their their client in the lawsuit, and of course the you know that pathway really calls attention to the history that Scott and I have been writing about the sort of in some ways, you know, even even the story of how people resisted at the time and who those resistors were and you know the the specter of equalization, like the you know, the motivation around these things. Those are things that people did not know. Like I don't think um, in any set of conversations that were articulated prior to the stuff that we started doing, anybody had ever heard of any of that. Right. And so, you know, and it sort of goes to one of the things that the Orlando Sentinel reporter, Desiree Stennett, uh, Desiree talked about when when she started a story, she thought it was a land story, but then once she had started writing about it, you know, one of the things that I got from her talk is that, like, well, you know, white people thought, well, race has nothing to do with this. It's just, a, it's just a real estate transaction. And I always laugh because, like, race has everything to do with it. Like, like even even if they don't necessarily say we're doing this because we're racist, the fact that they they felt the need to sort of like solve the racialized problem of equalization, which is a direct inheritor to their decision to have. Plessy versus Ferguson, like a separate equal doctrine. And so race has everything to do with it. It's just simply the race at the moment of the original sin of the transfer of the, the property is, oh yeah, we just trying to, to, to hit equalization. So we sold the land for way less than it's worth. And then while we held on to the land at the school board, we sold it off in chunks and never gave any of that money to any kind of benefit of the community. Right. And now we're going to sell the last chunk. And no, we do not care how you feel about that. You'll get your cut. It'll be way smaller than our cut, but the race has nothing to do with it. And I, you know, if you believe that, then just simply in your head, change everything to white people. And see if you still think it's okay. That's always my like. If if you did it to white people, would it be okay? Mm-hmm. Really? Would it be okay? Okay, then it's probably racialized. Right. So we've talked extensively about the physical dimensions and implications of space of Afrofuturism, Doctor Chambliss. I, I would like for you to explain the imagined and virtual aspects of space in Afrofuturism. What do those concepts look like in an Afrofuturist context? Well, obviously, the um, the imaginary has to do with both the kind of inner space of our own imagination and the ways that that space cannot be policed by the circumstances of repressive structures. So one of the things about Afrofuturism is it relies very heavily on like a space uh, visual language. You know, space is a a, a place, is that phrase always be associated with Sun Ra, but space is also a place that is undefined by the structures and restrictions of the terrestrial, of, of the, the world and the political and social implications of that, right? 
And when we, we think about the opportunities that our imagination offers, like you, those spaces cannot be policed by those people who have power and have control. And so therefore, they can become places where we imagine more freedom, that we think about the alternatives that can be liberatory. And virtual spaces are particularly important because they allow the imagination that we have to be made real, to be made tangible. Like, yes, you can, in previous generations, you made those things tangible by writing science fiction stories. But in a more contemporary standpoint, with digital tools, you can create the digital uh, version of Wakanda that you want. You can create the futuristic Edenville. You can take that blank Hungerford property and imagine, yes, there will be this performance space. There'll be this memory pool in honor of one of Hurston. There'll be this, that, blah, 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 blah. And that becomes a focal point for potential action in the real world. I mean, that's a classic relationship between sort of imagined visual takes on space and policy. Like once you have that vision made tangible somehow, uh, it becomes a way for you to sort of like measure your activity towards, can we achieve this, right? Like this gives us a focal point for our activity. And so you think about space as a place where people who want to imagine beyond the constraints of the everyday world, beyond the constraints of what they think of as uh, imperfect or regressive systems, and they 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 have ideas, they create these ideas, uh, they envision these ideas, and with digital tools they can make them manifest. They can you know they can make a house that you can walk into. They can make make the street that they they've always wanted, and that becomes really powerful rallying point for for resources, for ideas, for education, and so on and so forth. Moving on to some of the broader reflections of the 2020 to 2024 Zora Festival Afrofuturism Conference cycle. Of course, as I mentioned at the top of this podcast, this year marked the final year of the cycle. So, and just to give some context to the listeners, 2020 was what is Afrofuturism? 2021 was what is the sound of Afrofuturism? 2022 was what is the vision of Afrofuturism? Last year, 2023, was what is the spirit of Afrofuturism? And of course, this year, um, what is the space of Afrofuturism? And again, if you want to know more about Afrofuturism in a broad context of, you know, how it originated, who originated it, and some of the connections between, you know, why is this conference connected to Zora? Those types of questions, listen to that previous episode with me and Dr. Chambliss um, last year. All right. So, Um, Echoing the mission statement you said, Dr. Chambliss, in the first conference back in 2020, you said our mission is, quote, to bring together scholars, artists, teachers, the public, people who are animated by Afrofuturism as it exists today and connect them to a broader legacy of the black imaginary. Do you think you achieved or possibly even exceeded this mission? Uh, I think we definitely achieved it. It's hard to exceed uh, something with such nebulous boundaries (laughs) in some ways. But we definitely uh, succeeded in uh, integrating, I think, many times the things that the community knew in terms of like Black culture, Black art, and, and, and Black practice with what Afrofuturism is, right? Because at some level, many people have glimpsed it in their everyday life, in their lived experience, in their, their own memory of black practice, but didn't necessarily recognize as Afrofuturist. 
But every every one of those years, you know, we both helped define like, hey, this is what what we mean when we say Afrofuturism in this context. And here's an example, and you know that example, and here's how that example sort of matters to you. And and that's a really important thing because I, I do think it allows for a large number of people in the region and around the world to sort of connect the stories that are and the culture that is associated with Eatonville and with Zoyna Hurston with that bigger story. And I think a lot more people would argue Zoyna Hurston is a, a futurist now, for instance, than would have done it in or would have thought to do it in 2019. 100%. Similar to how the Hungerford School tremendously influenced this year's conference, what other contemporary events, if any, impacted the preparation or perhaps even the executions of previous conferences? Well, actually, you know, when we were starting out, one of the things that sort of paralleled what we were doing was Black Panther, right? Because that really helped people early on and go like, oh, that's what you mean, right? right? And then... Uh, as we were continuing on, you know, at some level, there was a broader public conversation about Afrofuturism. And every year we were having a much more nuanced conversation about Afrofuturism. And, and at some level, it was really an education that, that drove people deeper into what implications of Afrofuturism could be. So there wasn't like one particular thing that happened during that period. But there were a lot of little things that were like Afrofuturism become more mainstream. Probably the biggest thing that sort of affected the the rhythm of the the festival was the pandemic, right? Because when the pandemic happened, the festival still happened, but everything was virtual, Mm -hmm. right? Which in a way, that was also something we had always talked about and that was part of the plan. We were very committed to documenting this, but in the context of that, we really accelerated our plan and did more things and did less things, right? Like actually we stopped doing the podcast uh, every time I got to confess mm-hmm. because of capacity issues. But at the same time, we really worked very hard to record every lecture, right? And make it sure that it was in a centralized location and, and, and could be incorporated into the archive, right? And that's open access or archive, and so, and so, in some ways, the broader set of circumstances of the experience of the last five years aligned and with what we were trying to do. And when things sort of came out of left field, we made sure that we sort of were able to sort of address those. On a similar note, has Afrofuturism as an academic practice changed just within these five years? And if so, um, how did it affect your approach towards curating these conferences? Yeah, I think Afrofuturism changed a lot in these five years in the sense that I think you had more theorizing of Afrofuturism across different fields of endeavor. I think you saw the rise of a more nuanced understanding of Afrofuturism from a domestic American standpoint versus a global diasporic standpoint. So the rise of concepts like African futurism and the relationship between African-American perspective and a sort of global diasporic perspective, those all became much more nuanced, much more complicated. And the ways that Afrofuturism might be manifest in the digital age in particular have become more more sophisticated, right? You know, there are there have been 
conversations about around things like black code studies and, and, and black feminist studies and, and data feminism. And I think all those are inflected by and are, are intersecting with Afrofuturism. And, and we will, I think, at some level, maybe in the next cycle, you know, it's odd because, like, you know, the, the next cycle is not Afrofuturism. Right. But I think a lot of people sort of think about the Zora Festival now and think about Afrofuturism. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think we'll be interested to see how that tendency sort of plays itself out if there's no, like, yeah, there's not, like, a clear channel. Right. And to me, that's an interesting challenge for the festival to navigate, right? Like, there's a lot of enthusiasm about this. This is definitely something where many of the conversations that happen at the festival overlap with what Afrofuturism is. And they really have to figure out the best way to sort of tell those stories and and keep that momentum going, even as the next cycle is not defined exclusively by that. Right. Two-part question. Looking back, half a decade later, in what ways would you have done something differently, whether it's approach, planning, content, themes, et cetera? That's the first part. And second part to the question, how has this experience of curating a multi-year academic and public event impacted the conversation of Afrofuturism and your career more broadly? What would I do different? Uh, I honestly don't know what I would do different. <laughs> That's how successful I, it was. I, well, <laughs> or I just too stupid, right? <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I gave a presentation in 2019 like this. And like, think about, well, I always set a low to the point, I'm like, this is the point. This is what we're gonna gonna do. I made decisions about trying to do this thing related. Like one of the things that changed is like, hey, I never did a after the first year, I never did a call for papers again. Cause I was like, it's we are doing this thing and I do not believe that especially for the the audience, mm -hmm. trying to fit randomly whoever submitted a paper into it made sense to me, and so I just stopped doing it. Now, would somebody else have done it different? I'm sure, but I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. I, I I always tried to work within the parameters of the resources that we had, which was like a very real concern for me because I didn't want to promise to do something and not be able to do it. So ultimately, at the end of the day, I wouldn't change anything I did. I might say, hey, could I coordinate across the many activities of the festival better? Yeah, I would say that. But ultimately, I wasn't responsible for the entire festival. I was I was responsible for this part. Right. And working with people who also felt obligated to do this part. In terms of my career, you know, that's, that's an interesting question because our colleague, Walter Greeson, who is a very accomplished scholar and academic he always describes me way way more uh gracious than i would describe myself and he did it th this time too because he's like you changed the world and i don't know that i would ever describe it that way i would say partly because yes i'll be honest with you i'm one of those people who says like if you gotta tell people you're great mm, Maybe you're not so great, right? right? 
Uh, right. <laughs> if you gotta say it all the time, like, right. are you? Yeah. Like, you know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so there's that, and and that's that that's perhaps a self-deprecating thing. The other thing is like it takes time to understand the full impact of something, right? Right. So I would say that, like I said, I think that more people legit would say Zordon Hurst is an Afrofuturist now than would have said it in 2019. Yeah. And I think the reason they say that is because of this. Right. I agree. I think that is true. I, I see more articles written about Zordon Hurst mm-hmm. as an Afrofuturist. I see more people talk about her that way. And I think within the sort of like closed group of academics who are Afrofuturists, they would have said that, but the broader public wouldn't have said it. And now, you know, there's like a, a big set of scholars who study Afrofuturism who have, didn't study it five or six years ago. Right. And when they study it, they go, oh, yeah, so there was an Afrofuturist, right? Right. So that's a big transformation. And like, that's a contribution. And I think that one of the things that we talked about as a, a kind of like academic output related to the cycle, because we did have that, like, we often work with this journal called Third Stone, which is a journal of Afrofuturism. And a lot of the people who were involved in and a lot of the themes that were inspired by the festival were submissions and things that were connected to, to publications of Third Stone. And so that was really important. And so one of the things I think we'll continue to do, because that stuff takes time to come out. So they had a they have a volume that came out in December last year and it was really tied to the vision right so spirit and space will probably take another couple of years like because it takes time for peer review and right, 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 right. yeah and so there's there's a way where like yeah we have things that we did scott and i have published and i've worked on pieces and some of them are out some of them are at the press and some of them are still being written that are sort of connected to, to this whole sort of ideological landscape so from a career perspective yeah i think you know, I have a long career in sort of public humanities work across a number of endeavors related to what I do. I think this is probably one of the most significant manifestations of that. I think I've documented why it's important and uh, its benefits for many audiences. And I think a lot of people across especially across, you know, um, Central Florida community. But then I think even more broadly sort of recognize, oh, these are a set of conversations. They matter. Uh, this really resonates with with the concerns and thoughts of, of other scholars. And I'm, and I'm proud of that and proud of the the work of my colleagues who, you know, sort of rode with me, right? Right. Like at some level, it's like a small, small gang, right? Like, yeah. You know, gather your stuff. We ride tonight, right? Yeah. And like, you know, like, all right. And then we rode, right? right. And then you have to, like, you volunteered, right? So you always got to recognize, like, they they had heart and they they rode with me, right? And that that always matters a lot to me, for sure. Yeah, you're definitely on the money. That the fact that people have those sentiments of Zora Neale Hurston now being considered more as an Afrofuturist captures and reflects the success of this academic conference, for sure. Final question. Despite this being the end of your tenure as curator of the conference, I'm going to scratch it to you plan because I, I think you are going to continue to do this. So how do you plan to continue to engage with this subject? How do I continue? How will I continue to engage with Afrofuturism? Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. I am. I finished a documentary called Afrofantastic, the transformative world of Afrofuturism, which you can watch on PBS platform. There you go. Um, I'm working on a second one about horror and Afrofuturism that I hope to have come out this year. I have a new reader um, called Mapping Afrofuturism, which is a sort of primary document reader about Afrofuturism that I hope to have come out this year as well for use in the classroom because I teach a class on Afrofuturism every year. I will continue to be working with Scott because we we are working on uh, what I call a trilogy of articles, like One Thing's Impressed, and we have to finish a, a, a last thing that's really sort of like inspired by the Zoya Hurston and and the Hungerford and the festival and all that. So we have to get that out. I do not know exactly how I will fit into the Zora Neale Hurston Festival moving forward, right? Like there are good reasons why the end of a cycle the the person leaves. Like right. there are good reasons why that is. Like there might be someone sm- smarter, younger, faster, waiting in the wings to take over. Right. Uh, you know, one of the, the worst things in academia is like, oh, you let the same person stay in charge too long yep. and then bad things happen. So yep. it's like you can look at it and be like, hey, good things happen. We are proud of what you did. We enjoyed it. We learned a lot. You accomplished a lot of things. Thank you. Goodbye. That is there. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. Right. So I don't know. And it's not my job to know how the next cycle is going to go, but that doesn't mean the next cycle is going to be bad. Right. Right? (laughs) It doesn't mean that. It just means that it won't be Julian saying, do this, do that. No, don't do that, do that. Right? And that could be super important because placemaking matters so much. And if it's a cycle where placemaking gets explored and manifests and the community gets a a voice and and does all these things, that's going to matter even more probably than this cycle. Right. So there's, you know, every reason to believe that good things are going to happen and every reason to be excited about that. And and the audience that have come to the previous cycle and have been inspired, you know, the hope is that they'll continue to want to be like, you know, what's going to be happening over there? You know, can I participate with that? Like, you know, they did some really interesting stuff those those last few years. I want to, I want to know. And that's gonna be cool, and that and that is something I think like everyone should be excited about, right? Uh, because many of the partners that made it happen are still here, right? UCF and Scott and Seminole, they're still here. They're still committed to that, and perhaps given the, the nature of things in Florida right now, they're probably a little bit more committed than, right. than they were before it started. So yeah, you know, we got every reason to think that cool things are going to happen and I'll figure out, you know, my role in that. Well, Dr. Chambliss and Dr. French, thank you so much for taking some time out of already your busy weekend itinerary to talk to me about this year's conference and just reflecting more broadly uh, on the cycle. I really appreciate it. Thanks thank a you. Lot. Yeah, thanks. That was the pod. I hope you all enjoyed it. It certainly was a pleasure to talk with Dr. Julian Chambliss again and have Dr. Scott French fully featured in the podcast. Their their chemistry was great. It, I mean, being in front of them in the in the studio, I saw it in real time, and you definitely hear it still in the audio. It was great to have both of them talk about 
the importance of this Afrofuturism cycle, how transformative it was, not just for the Zora Festival more broadly, but also for scholars of Afrofuturism to have this this space, this forum to really develop these ideas further. Then this year, with its very clear and obvious public value with the with the Robert Hungerford School property in Eanville, Florida. On the next episode, that sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> Sorry, it's just the the VOP uh, series. By the way, I didn't want to say this in the intro because I didn't want the intro to be too long. But please go check that out if you have no idea what I'm talking about. It was a fantastic series. Uh, it was a 10-episode mini-podcast series in which definitely stylistically, tonally, almost in every kind of dimension of a podcast, it's it's completely different from Night's History Cast. And I mean that in the best way possible. So please go check that out if you have not done so already. But what I was initially going to say is the next episode of Night's History Cast is actually the 50th episode. So for the 50th episode, I brought two special guests, I won't say who they are, to discuss with me kind of a little history about this podcast, its conception, its its origins, and just podcasting in the history profession more broadly. So the next episode, it's a really fun one, talking about podcasting history. I mean, come on. So please stay tuned for the 50th episode. Um, you have to celebrate. I mean, come on, it's 50. So 50 is a pretty big milestone uh, for, for a podcast that's been around since 2017. Um, so please stay tuned for the next one. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please subscribe to Night's History Cast wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon. I mean, anywhere you get your audio, whether it's music or podcasts, Night's History Cast is there. So please, please uh, subscribe. And get, and get notified for new episodes within those feeds. I very much appreciate it. We appreciate it here at the Department of History at UCF. I'm Sebastian Garcia, a graduate student of history. I point that out because the, the production of the VLP Institute series, which was during my first semester of grad school here at UCF, I wasn't really able to, to formally announce that I, that I am now a graduate student. Um, and I'm not just saying this for uh, weird creds or, or boasting. Uh, I say that because as a graduate student, you kind of have a an extra level of legitimacy attached to your name. And, and for me personally, besides using that in other fields in academia, I, I say it because hopefully that brings bigger opportunities for this podcast and for podcasting in general in the UCF Department of History. Uh, wink, wink. Uh, so, yeah, when those developments become more materialized, I will definitely keep you guys posted. But yes. I am Sebastian Garcia. Thanks again for listening to this episode, and I'll see you all on the next one. Thank you, everybody. 